Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Christian Riley, the CTO at Citrix, and we discuss becoming an agent for positive change, learning to ask the right questions by practicing active listening, and the importance of putting your team in the roles and positions where they can be most effective. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Christian, what's up, buddy? Hey, how are you? Fantastic. Jake said you had to go tame the kids or something. Yeah, I just had to make sure they don't speak. So it's for the very rare occurrence I'm actually at home for once. How old are they? Uh, one's sixteen, one's thirteen, and one's eleven. But they're uh, you know they're crazy gamers, so they're dancing up and down here all over the place, shouting and screaming at Fortnite and other stuff. Yeah, well, that's that's what you do as a kid, though, right? Oh, absolutely. I think so. Been a long time since I was a kid. <laughs> I've got two that are under the age of two. So, oh my, yeah, you can't talk to them and get them to be quiet yet because they don't they don't listen really. Yeah, well, we, yeah. we we had yeah we had three under five at one point, so that was fun. Oh man, that's tough. So, are you in Florida at the headquarters, or are you in the UK? No, I'm in the UK actually. Yeah, so I um, I spend about I don't know probably about seventy five percent of my time circling the globe. So I don't really yeah. have a home. I don't have a home. I just hang out on planes, which is pretty cool. Well, how I found you was I'm scrolling through, I think like Twitter or LinkedIn or something, and I see some Formula One type cars and some racing stuff. And then I saw a title of CTO. I'm like, okay, who's this awesome person? Let's click on that guy. And then I took a screenshot and I said, oh, I want to talk to him in the future and sent it to Chloe. And here you are. And here we are. How about that? Yeah. What was the, that? Uh, Oh, so um, for the last few years, we've been an innovation partner with the Red Bull Racing Formula One team. So, uh, yeah, they use a lot of our technology for various things, both in their um, factory in the UK here for, for a lot of design and a lot of the processes that they have around the design of the car. But uh, then they also use it trackside. So they go to 20, 20 races a year um, in places that they don't choose. Right, So they kind of just you know rock up at wherever the Formula One governing body says, we're going to have a race here this year. And then they plug in a bunch of infrastructure. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. They, they, they gather a lot of telemetry from the cars during the whole race weekend and sort of sharing that back and forth with the UK and wherever they happen to be in the world. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a, if you're into motorsport, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a dream relationship for us to have because um, not only do we get up close and personal to it all, but, but I mean, it, it really helps us to showcase the technology for other customers. Right? The people just like... Then light comes on when they see kind of like the extreme use cases that these have got and, and how much they uh, how much they rely on our stuff. So yeah, I mean it's, it's it's really not a bad problem to have. Yeah, it's like the sports, the um, the baseballs and the footballs. They kind of got into it publicly sooner first, right? And then now you see this technology applied to the Formula One stuff. They must be like real excited. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it's uh, it, it, the the whole motorsport world. I mean, it's it's kind of like it's the most technologically advanced thing I think I've ever seen, other than probably what the guys at NASA do, which is probably yeah, a, yeah, opportune time to talk about that with the fifty year thing with Apollo. But yeah, I mean, it's you know, it, it's incredible. The, the guys, uh, some of the things they do, you know, they have like thirty thousand design changes a year to the car. You know, they tear the whole mm. thing down but they move from place to place. I mean, it's, it's uh, they, they lovingly call it the circus, you know, because they're kind of moving around in this, you know, 20 times a year constant state of, uh, of evolution, not only of the car, but of the entire team. And, 
yeah, I mean, it's 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 a real pleasure and a privilege to be involved with it. Um, and we, as I say, we, we've done it for the last few years, and um, you know, great relationship with them, got to know them, and, and there's a great cultural fit. You know, I mean, Red Bull generally are an incredible brand. Uh, you know, they do so much other stuff other than Formula One, of course. But um, you know, the the cultures are very similar inside inside of Citrix and, and the race team. So you know, it's kind of funny. You walk around our offices and you see everybody wearing the the Red Bull team gear with the Citrix logos on it. And it's kind of like, wow, it just feels like one big happy family. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. That is amazing. 30,000 design changes to the car a year. That reminds me, I was talking with um, the CTO of Salesforce. He was saying how they basically rebuild their entire systems like quarterly or several times a year. And I was like, whoa, I was really surprised by that. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's cool, you know, and um, as I say, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a great showcase, right? Because, I mean, they, they, they are really, really um, keen to help us move the ball forward as well. So they take every bit of alpha code that we make available and, you know, they bend it and tweak it and try and break it. And the good thing about that is it, it, it features then in our mainstream releases. So, you know, however we can help push the envelope with those guys, it benefits all our customers. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's just such a great relationship. And, I, you know, I think, I was really fortunate to fall into that as the exec sponsor for it. So, um, yeah, I don't know how that happened, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I know. Right. It's not something you want to change. Now, does this, does this whole Red Bull thing that we're talking about, does it fit into the, the concept of, you know, redesigning digital workspaces and how you're reimagining that? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you think about some of the use cases that these, these guys have got, inside the team i mean the, the number one thing that you that you experience above all else is is this, just how paranoid every team is about their intellectual property you know because if you think about it i mean they're talking about literally trying to shave one one hundredth of a second off which is the difference between winning and coming second right? and you know nobody ever remembers who came second right? so everybody wants to win and win win win, win. Uh, and so yeah i mean if you think about what they've done i mean they've taken some some very complex work processes, which is what's interesting for us, right? I mean, you, you know, we're, we're, through all customer conversations, the technology is one thing, but really di- diving into and, and deeply understanding the work process and what it is that these try- guys are really trying to do um, is fascinating because then you become, you know, much more in- engaged in their sort of language of their business and, and understand, you know, what it is that puts the cars on the road, what it is that keeps the drivers safe, what it is that, that excites their team. Uh, members as well so yeah absolutely i mean i i think you know look i mean it, it, it's a very fiercely regulated sport so there's only you know certain things that you're allowed to do with the technology you know they have some limitations on the amount of time that they can spend in the wind tunnels the amount of um you know scale that they can build a car at to actually take in the wind tunnel so yeah i mean there's all these things around it but i think if you were to, to look at it and say well could they do what you know what the, they need to do without our underlying technology probably and i think if you take that to the extreme it's kind of like yeah every single bit of what they do is digital i mean everything from parts management of the car you know the additive manufacturing that they do it's it's just mind-blowing but i think you know that that's the direction of, of of a lot of customers that we see going in this truly sort of digital way which really is all about increasing productivity right and, and making sure that getting stuff done um in in the, in the most efficient way is kind of front and center so yeah it's, it's, it's fun times they, they limit the amount of time you can spend in the wind tunnel yeah, absolutely. So there's, um, in fact, they, they have limitations now on the amount of processing power you can use for simulation. Um, oh, because that's where my next honestly, question was going. I think they're going to limit yeah. your wind tunnel. Let's just simulate it. Yep. Uh, but so, so you'd think so, right? But then the problem with that is that then you ha- you're actually limited to, let's call them cycles uh, of compute uh, that you're actually allowed to use, which is regulated by the, the, the Formula One governing body. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, and, the, and, you know, of course, that's, that's trying to keep some level of fairness, right? Because obviously there's the teams at the top, you know, the Mercedes, um, 
uh, Ferrari, Aston Martin, Red Bull Racing that kind of have a lot of good resources, you know, good money. And of course, it's a business, right? So the higher you come in the table, the more money you get, and the more money you get, the more investments you can make. So yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's uh, it, it's not like it looks on the TV when you see the cars just go around. You think oh, that's kind of cool. They must have good drivers. There's a whole. I mean, it's like a an 800 team. 800 person team behind the guys at Aston Martin Red Bull Racing just doing incredible incredible stuff we should get together with Netflix and you should do like a behind the scenes tech of like what happens at Red Bull Racing yeah well so you know there was a Netflix series that was done uh, or was it Prime it was Amazon Prime or Netflix whichever one uh, that was all about the F1 season of of the year before last um, so sorry whichever way you were. Um, so they released an eight-part series, which was like really giving you in-depth look behind the behind some of the teams and, and what it was actually the last season. Uh, what was going on? Um, you know, some insight into the lives of the drivers and, and what they have to do. You know, outside of driving the car. Um, you know, and then it followed a couple of the teams very closely, including Red Bull. Um, you know, and it's it, it's it's a I mean, it's just a phenomenal sport. I'm sure all sports are the same when they're behind the scenes. Um, but, you know, I'm a massive Manchester City soccer fan. So there was another documentary done on that as well. So I've been pretty lucky, actually, getting all this behind-the-scenes stuff from, from, from Prime and from Netflix. So long may that continue. That's awesome. You were like my grandfather. He, we got to the United States from Greece because he was a professional soccer player. And, oh, then, okay. and then he landed in Miami down near Fort Lauderdale. And in the off-season, he would work at the docks, right, because he needed something to do. And then he got into powerboat racing, and then he won the world championship for powerboat racing in, like, 1988. Wow, what offshore yeah. powerboat racing? Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. With wow. Don, he was a co-pilot with Don Johnson, who is like a popular movie guy, but then also in boat racing. Yeah, the guy from Miami Vice. Right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow. yeah. Anyway, he was, he was like throttle. I think Don was the the steering person, and he was like the throttle person, and then there was a third person I don't remember. But so it was like like Crockett and Tubbs for real life, <laughs> <laughs> right? I love it. Now, now your kids, they're, you said a couple of them are getting older, right? Are any of them showing interest in tech or programming? Oh, yeah. So my son, uh, in fact, I just got his school report. It's kind of funny. Um, he's now the same age I was when I got my first PC. Oh, well, my first computer, actually. It wasn't called a PC. But, um, and uh, his, his school report was kind of like, hey, he's done great, you know, but like this guy's got such a super keen interest in anything to do with computing or computers. He's absolutely been holding the computer club and teaching these guys how to do javascript and stuff so he's 11 so he's been you know he started off with a thing called scratch a while back which is kind of a very straightforward uh you know kind of early programming or introduction to programming very very simplistic and then he moved on through code academy and onto javascript and so he's been kind of teaching and he's been doing a bit of python so yeah i mean he's see now the, the funny thing is i was never really a brilliant programmer i did it and had to do it as part of the courses that i did but uh, this guy's just got such an aptitude for it but he's probably got more patience than me i didn't have a lot of patience the stuff that didn't work so <laughs> yeah so yeah absolutely and um yeah my i, I have a, i have girl girl boy so um the two girls um, you know, they're just kind of like consumers of tech rather than makers of it. You know, they're constantly doing something on one of the myriad devices that they have. And, uh, you know, they, like all three of them, don't realize that dad controls the internet, though, right? So all you got to do is just <laughs> flick off the home router and that's the end of their fun. Right? So, um, yeah, no, they, it's amazing to watch them. You know, they, they consume tech. Like, you know, my, my, my eldest daughter uh, taught herself how to speak Korean which is a long story, but she likes this boy band called BTS, which is like just exploded. Of course, globe. of course. Yeah. Um, and so, We're fans so of BTS she, here at the show. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there you go. Right, so, she was a B, so she was a BTS fan before the BTS army was invented. But of course, the guys couldn't speak much English then, if at all. Uh, all the fan sites were in Korean. So she's like, hell, you know what? I'm going to 
for Christmas, I want the, you know, kind of the Rosetta Stone kind of thing that teaches you a different language. So she absolutely burned through the first couple of introduction things to Korean. So now she has Korean video pen pals. And so she spends her time talking to them in English and they speak back in Korean. So they're kind of learning each other's language. So yeah, so you walk past the bedrooms in my house and it's like, you could be in three different countries. It's crazy. That's amazing. You get some JavaScript object-oriented type lessons over here from, <laughs> and then you, you get some it. Korean. And then what's the other one into? Yeah. yeah. So she's a gymnast. So she's more of, yeah, you'll usually find her hanging upside down in one of the doorways or something. Just, you know, she's has these bars and the doors that you do your core strength training. So yeah, yeah so it's, uh, yeah. So she'll be hanging upside down like a bat somewhere and doing core strength training while the other two are doing their own languages, but you know, for different reasons. So yeah, it's been pretty mad house. My wife has gotten into the silks. You know, have you seen the silk things that they yeah. hang from? Yeah. So she, that's what she does every week. She goes with her friends and hangs up the silks and then does the crazy stuff. So I love it. And so I'm curious to know, like right now, I'm going to take it back from family stuff back. Well, actually, before we go back to work stuff, you, you mentioned that you got into a little bit of programming younger. What but was programming your first like introduction to technology or was it like a lawnmower? Like what got you into technology? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I had the very first Atari home video game unit, right? Like I guess most people my age probably did. Um, you know, and I remember playing Pong, uh, and playing the sort of the tennis game, which was, you know, kind of a, I don't know. It was an. I don't even know if it was eight bit back then, but it was just basically two squares and you know, oh, sorry, a square and two lines that you control with a dial thing. That was fascinating enough. Um, but then in 1983, I got my first home computer, which uh, in the UK um, there was a, a mass mar mass market computer made, which came about the same time as the Commodore VIC 20 and you know some of the early sort of Sinclair. A little bit later than the than the eighty one, but right about that same time, where where you know home computers were were, were kind of new, um, and it was a, a an offshoot of the British Broadcasting Corporation called the BBC, and the BBC computer was intended to be deployed in schools, um, you know, around really? about the, the, yeah, the, the yeah, I mean that was kind of like one of the earliest. Um, in fact, it, it, there was some kind of partnership with Acorn Computer. I can't remember exactly what, how it how it worked. That was a long time ago now. But but yeah, so basically the idea was that these home computers, uh, which came in a Model A and a Model B, and the Model A had 16K of RAM, and the Model B had 32K of RAM. So if you could afford a Model B, you were like, wow, you, you were the talk of the street. Um, and so, yeah, I, I bought that. And, and I remember opening at Christmas and connecting it all up to, you know, like it was connected to a TV back then. And it, you know, it, didn't, it had a, um, a cassette uh, player that you would load the games on and whatever. Um, but it came with its own language, which is a, a, a derivative of basic and basics are such a great language to learn. If you want to get into just, you know, sort of functions and, and structured procedures and so, and so on and so forth. But I was more interested in what was in it. So I, I took it apart on the day after Christmas day. And I came, <laughs> I remember my mum coming down and she was like, what, what the hell are you doing? I've just, you know, this is a brand new computer. I'm like, I just want to see what it does. So I just took the entire thing apart. So I was fascinated by what was in it. And you know, back then I didn't know, you know, the one part of the chipset from the other, I could just about identify the inbuilt speaker that was in it, which was a really tinny kind of little thing that was welded on the side there. Um, and it actually had a, a Rockwell processor in it. So it was obviously long before Intel came on the scene with PCs. Um, and so I started to learn basic and you could buy a book that came with it that would have like, you know, there was a hundred programs in it where you could do everything from fractal design or you could run random sequences for number generation. I mean, just, just a fascinating introduction. And so, um, yeah, that was really where, where, where I think my passion ignited because I, I was then fascinated by, by, you know, how all this stuff worked and then went on to buy my own uh, EEPROM 
uh, blower years later, a couple of years later, which allowed me to sort of take the programs that I'd learned to write and then burn them onto EEPROMs and then stick them inside a, a sideways RAM ROM board that went onto the, the main motherboard itself. So this thing ended up being like a really tricked out, imagine it being like some kind of voodoo laptop that you'd see nowadays. But yes, I mean, that was, that was, what, was 1983, 84? Um, and then I went on to build or help build the school's Econet system, which was a very rudimentary kind of, you know, uh, way to connect the, these, these BBC computers together through a thing called Econet. Again, that very, very simplistic networking. And, you know, from there, just kind of thought, hey, this is kind of cool and, and realized I had somewhat of a passion and a, perhaps an aptitude for it. And, and the rest is history. Of it. Nice. So then you do some schooling, you end up. Did you go like, have you been at Citrix for like a super long time or did you have some other no. in- interests? No, no. So I actually started my career. My, my first placement um, was at a company called Technology PLC, which is based in the UK. And eventually that was subsumed somewhat into ICL and into Fujitsu. So it's a bit of a long story. And then oh, um, that was, yeah. yeah, so that was kind of I mean, a big company, of course. So that was, that was, I started off doing systems engineering when I was 21. Um, so that was basically, you know, you take over an account as they were called. So this would be one of the big banks or one of the big industrial companies. Uh, and then you would be effectively responsible for kind of the technology platform associated with what they were trying to do. Um, so I did that for a year or so. And then I actually left and joined an engineering construction company. So I spent 21 years, uh, or just just short of 21 years um, in an engineering and construction company working through pretty much every department related to IT uh, and then being involved in some really iconic projects around the world and you know, taking different levels of responsibility, uh, different team leadership roles, becoming more conversant with different parts of IT on the business side, you know, on the finance side, on the pure technology side, on the application side, on the system side. Um, and yeah, I kind of just went all over the place, really. I, I, I'm kind of unique because even though I was in one company for, for a long time, it was a very, very big company. And, and within that, there were lots of opportunities to do different things. And yeah, I was kind of a little bit of one of the, the kind of guy who'd always put his hand up and say, hey, I'll go, I'll go do it. When somebody would say, hey, we need, to, we need to go to you know, Uzbekistan or I'll be like, I'll go, I'll go. Just because I love travel and I, and I love the, the thought of, of being in different countries and learning different cultures and, and understanding what it takes to build IT infrastructures in, in different countries was a, was a heck of a learning experience. So yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I was very fortunate, you know, I kind of, I fell into the, the job. I didn't know much about the company when I joined them. They just actually acquired another company uh, in, in my hometown. And uh, it turns out to be one of the biggest companies in the world based in San Francisco. So I then ended up moving to America and lived there for a long time. And um, yeah, so I, I guess, you know, when you make those decisions uh, 20 odd years ago, you never know how it's going to pan out. But, but luckily, it was pretty cool. So then the story goes, which is interesting. I, I, Citrix was, a, was a, a big strategic vendor to us when I was at, at Bechtel. And um, yeah, you know, I got, got on with all the Citrix guys really well. The leadership team, you know, we, we built a lot of very... Very cool stuff using core Citrix technologies, very much similar to Red Bull, but on a much bigger scale. Um, and then, you know, eventually, uh, and I always joke to people in the customer world now and I say, hey, you know, if you do a good job with our technology, we'll hire you. And so that's that's exactly what happened. And I, I joined uh, Citrix as the CTO about uh, four and a half years ago. Amazing. Dude, that's so exciting. I like your attitude too, because you were up for new opportunity. You were willing, like, how can I jump in and be useful? These are excellent traits. Now, how does your team look? Do you have, do you lead a, uh, a team at Citrix? Yeah. So we've got the CTO office, which is, um, you know, by, by design, a very nimble organization. So the, the way I like to explain it is, is kind of, if you take, and it's never quite the same on any day, but there's, there's really kind of four key elements to it. So about 25% of our time is, is spent 
wondering about the future. So, you know, we kind of look at key trends, not, not just in, in technology, but also some socioeconomic trends. You know, we, we're heavily invested in trends around, you know, the future of work. And I know it's kind of a cliche, but it's important to understand, you know, how, how, what will work look like? How will it get packaged? Where will it get done? Who will be doing it? Because there's so many interesting trends that are to do with the human element of work rather than just technology. So, you know, we spend a lot of time, time looking at that and, and trying to figure out where that's heading. About 25% of our time is spent directly with customers, which, of course, um, due to the background of some of the people on the team, they've all come from large customer environments. So it's, it's a very natural thing for us to go do there in the field sort of side. About 25% of our time is spent working directly with the product and engineering teams, so making sure that we bring the feedback and, and kind of help to align some of the roadmap activities. And then about 25% of our time is spent with our key technology partners so that could be anybody from sort of microsoft to google to amazon to ibm and then a lot of our big system integrations so fujitsu again i meet with regularly so that's kind of interesting now that's all come full circle 25 years later um you know guys like dxc and so on so yeah i mean it's it's it, it's a great oh you know dxc because, they're in tampa oh, of course yeah so yeah yeah, they, cool. yeah yeah so i mean you know it's 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 great we have a very very lightweight team but a very um uh very capable team with lots of great different experiences and I think you know as, as we mentioned before when when you you know you kind of go around and, and and look lots of people have come from a certain background and have done really really well but I think the people that we've got they, they've kind of got a mixed background you know some technology some business some customer experience um you know we, we've got a, a a really um light team I would say but that's by design you know we don't want a, a big heavy amorphous massive people just trying to you know, convince the world that they should be doing stuff um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's, it, it's fun, you know, above all else, because we're, we're, we're going in a, in, a, in a completely sort of new direction for the company, a lot of which needs to be validated, of course, from a technology perspective, but also from through the, through, through the customer lens. So, it, you know, it, it's great. There's, there's never two days that are the same. And, you know, we get to meet um, a lot of great customers. We spend a lot of time with, with CIOs and COOs and all these new roles that are appearing in customer worlds, you know, the chief digital officer, the chief revenue officer, the chief HR officer. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, you know, ne never, never two days the same and, and very rarely we're in the same physical place, two days running as well. So it's, yeah, it's good. I love it. It's not, it's like, it matches my energy level. I'm a, I like to move. Right. Uh, now we've got some questions from the audience. Is that cool? Uh, some yeah, questions. Sure. Yeah. So one of them is about, uh, this concept of your vibe attracts your tribe. So we've been talking about this a lot on, on the show and like culture and your team and the question really is, have you found that to be true? Have you found you, the, the leader's vibe attracts the people that are around the leader? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it, it, it's kind of interesting. I, I think as you, as you start to get a little bit later in your career, you know, you, you can kind of go two ways. You can kind of go down the kind of the fat, dumb and happy route where you kind of make more money and whatever, and you kind of ignore everything that's going on around it. Or you, you, you kind of look at it and say, you know, I have an opportunity here to, 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 use my brand if you want to call it that although i get a little bit nervous about saying that thing because it seems a little bit trite reputation but, you know, reputation reputation yeah let's call it that um to actually you know not just help people in the organization but but then to build a a good network and a good constituency outside of that you know and, and it's kind of interesting you know what, what what always makes me laugh is you know i have some great relationships with some of our competitor ctos guys i've known for a long long time um and people always ask me, say, like, how do you guys get on so well? And it's like, you know, you got to remember that this is a very small industry that we're in, you know, and, and all of us should be working together to do what's best for customers. So I think when you, when you look at it in terms of your vibe, attract your travel, I'd absolutely say yes. Um, but I think that then transcends the, the, you know, the direct reports or the people inside the organization, because 
I think, especially, you know, with the days of social media now, we, you know, we all like to have good, solid exchanges of opinions on Twitter, you know, not, not vendor bashing each other, but just, you know, hey, here's what I think, here's what you think, well, this is this, this is that. And I think when people look at that from a third party, they actually look at it and say, you know what, these guys are pretty good, you know, they're intelligent, they're articulate, they've got their own points to make, and, you know, we can kind of get behind these these guys as a, as a customer or as a partner or as a potential employee. So, yeah, I, I think it's critical, you know. I mean, I, I had two very, very simple um, goals in life, which is, you know, just, just meet everybody on the level that you meet them on, whether it's the janitor or the CEO. And the second one is just don't be an idiot. It's not really <laughs> difficult. It's really not that difficult. I love that advice. No, that's, that's fantastic. The, the next question, um, asking really great questions. So often the question that you ask yields the result, right? So if I ask you something, your brain instantly starts processing that. But how do you get your teams to ask better questions to solve better problems? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that we try and do uh, is work on a thing that we call active listening. And it sounds like another one of these, hey, it's a big leadership thing. But it's actually very important because, you know, we're very fortunate to to engage with lots of customers. And, and it's really only by listening do you really learn how to ask the questions. And that might sound counterintuitive, right? But, you know, there's a way to actively listen because you're not listening because you want to ask the next question. You're listening because you want to hear, uh, assimilate, um, you know, correlate, and, and, and then kind of figure out what, what the, the customers or whoever it is you're talking to is, is really actually saying. So, you know, I always like to say with the team, you know, guys, we should never have the answers. We should always have the questions because nobody knows everything. But, but if you think if you know the right questions to ask, um, you know, and, and I have this other philosophy, which is pretty simple, which I call ABC, which is always be connecting. So every time somebody says something, it's kind of like, how can that then spark another thought? And what if I ask a question in a slightly different way? Or, or I've, I've heard something now that makes me not want to ask that question because I understand that it's either a contentious issue or it may be a political issue or it may be something else. And I think the only way you can do that is by truly actively listening. I mean, if you, and there's nothing worse than, than any vendor or, or frankly, anybody doing a presentation, just doing a kind of show up and throw up, right? Which is like, hey, I've come to say my piece and I've got a hundred slides and you're going to listen. It's kind of like, whoa, that's really not, not, you know, not my way and not the way that, that the team operates for sure. Um, you know, so, and as I say, you know, we, we spend such a long time in the customer environments that, and that's a very privileged position. Right? So you can't just go in and do a whole you know, like a vendor speak. It's like, how can I understand what it is that you're really trying to tell me? Um, and you do that by the active listening piece. And then the questions are much more natural, whether they're for confirming or even some cases challenging what you've heard, um, but doing it clearly in a way that, that shows that you understand the context in which either the answer was given or the introduction or, or whatever it is. And it, you know, it, it sounds easy, but it's actually really hard because most people just want to, you know, stick in my, le- this is what I know, I'm going to talk about this. Um, so the connecting bit's really important. And, and I think, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that we have a team of diverse experience and skill set actually helped with that because, you know, we were able then to collaborate with each other. And when we get together, you know, we, we have a, a much wider uh, you know, kind of pool to pull from intellectually. So yeah, that, that seems to work for us. And I really like what you said about competition because as I'm getting older and having more experience in the business world, what I'm realizing is the companies that do the best, they focus their attention on the customer versus focusing their attention on what the competitor does. And some people like, I even brought this up in an investor pitch once and they were like very fearful of the competition. And I said, look, if your competition is doing something so much better than you, then your customers are going to tell you that as they're coming or going. You're, you're going to learn about what people are doing from your customers if you're listening to them really well. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, and and I think I I think it's kind of it's okay to fear some competition, um, but I think it, it can be an, unhe- an unhealthy obsession. You know, I think you kind of have to. Uh, we, I mean, we, we I don't know if you're familiar with the with the work, but um, Clayton Christensen, which is one of the things that I live by. So Clayton Christensen's uh, understanding the customer jobs to be done. So that was a piece that he wrote a couple of years ago in, in the Harvard Business Review, which really talks about you know understanding how to reach a customer and how to actually use innovation to reach a customer. And you know it, it's it, it's it's absolutely fundamental to what I try and drive within the within the CTO office, which is you know every conversation that we should have should be about advancing the customer journey in, in whichever way we, we want to define that. Um, you know, so I, I think the notion of focusing. I mean, you, you know, the danger is that you end up trying to do a beauty contest between vendor A, B, and C. And you know, I mean, if you don't know your own value proposition and, and you don't know, you know, kind of where you are in the customer value chain, then you kind of in a bit of a, a, a dodgy position anyway. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, look, I mean, we 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 understand what's going on, and and, and it's interesting because as the Citrix um, uh, story evolves and, and and as our sort of products and services change over time it's very clear that we're going to meet different types of competition. So I, I think being aware of who the competition truly is versus who it was uh, is also very important. So when, you know, when we take a sort of a three to five year lookout, we, we definitely see competition there that hasn't been in our usual space. And, and in some cases may have been um, uh, cooperative in the past. So we have this kind of cooperation view where sometimes we'll be cooperative, sometimes we'll be competitive, but I think that's just the nature of business. And, and you know, I think as long as we're all doing the best thing, yeah, I mean, and look, as long as we're all doing the best thing for customers, then, you know, customers are smart, right? And they typically tend to buy uh, people and solutions, you know, they don't buy technologies. So I, I think there's a whole, that whole soft skills thing, which I, you know, it's good to see it being talked about in tech, because I think we've had this notion that, you know, tech is really for STEM people and nobody else. I, I think that's a really bad, certainly going into the next work generation of the workforce, I think that's a really bad proposition. Of course, I'll still need technical skills, but I think these softer skills are becoming much more important and, and will become even more pronounced as we go through the next generation of work. Yeah, we noticed a switch maybe 10, 10, 15 years ago, I'm just guessing, where that person that was like the only person who could do it, like the hero type person when it came to programming, started to die out because more people were educated in the language and in technology. And then people started to get a real edge when they had people skills or soft skills and they could work together because now you can you need a bunch of people working together with a bunch of different experts in order to take a like a really advanced project to the market and so now these individuals who have maybe slightly less technical ability but they have human interaction and they can work with you and you can get something done and they can drive an outcome those people are becoming very valuable Uh, absolutely i mean i think if i look at look at our product design team as an example right i mean some of the the brightest brightest individuals who are not deeply technical, but they understand, you know, how the human psyche works. They understand the science of individuals and the relationship between individuals and their technology. And I mean, that's that's amazing stuff, right? I mean, that's bordering on the kind of psychology major world rather than a technology world. So yeah, I mean, and I, I, you know, I, I think there's so much opportunity um, out there for 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 all sorts of of new roles and skills and whatever and listen i mean i I don't i don't buy into this notion that ai is going to replace everybody i think it's going to create so many more opportunities in areas that we don't understand yet so yeah absolutely i mean i I think the 
the, the, the technology landscape as an industry and as an opportunity space is changing. And I think for the better, right? I mean, I remember when I first came into this in a work life, um, some of the, I mean, it was, there were very few women around, frankly, in, in technology. Um, the ones that were around were kind of like the help desk supervisor or whatever, or, you know, ITHR or something like that. Um, now, I mean, some of the coolest people I follow on Twitter are like really seriously badass women cybersecurity professionals. And it's kind of like, this is pretty awesome. So I think there's a, this must be something in that in terms of the analytical mind. I, I honestly believe that. If I look at my wife as an example, I mean, she could out-analytical me any, any, any moment <laughs> of the day. I might be able to out-technology her, but, you know, the, I mean, I, I, I just think that's a great thing for diversity and inclusion. It's a, it's a big part of what we're all about, Citrix. Um, you know, so I, I think opportunity abounds and, and it's, you know, it's going to get even more interesting as all these roles that are currently unfilled begin to double or even quadruple over the next decade or 15 years. And we're going to have this massive, massive gap, uh, you know, in, in terms of, of opportunities versus the people that can fill them. So, you know, I, I think as an industry, it's wise of us to, to make it more open, to make it more inclusive and to actually appreciate that, you know, these soft skills are a critical part of, of what we're going to need as an industry going forward. Absolutely. And when, when you were talking about um, AI and some of the fear there, it reminded me about when in the United States, when, when the internet was coming out, everyone was super fearful that the post office and people would stop using mail because you had email and that we would just completely lose the post office and shipping would go down and that would crumble. And actually the exact opposite happened it amplified the number of packages being sent because now people were selling items online and they were communicating and getting to know other people. And so that increased the mail level. And so that was really interesting because when you're talking about, okay, everyone's scared AI is going to take over everything, the exact opposite might happen. It might actually create significantly more jobs. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's in, that's a great point you raise about the, about the, you know, the kind of the, the growth in, in online. What I've also noticed, I mean, obviously we, we study some of the trends that I mentioned earlier, like, you know, contingent worker and gig economy. Uh, I can tell you that everything that I order, pretty much everything that I order from any kind of online um, capability that I use usually ends up being delivered by somebody who's using either their own car or their own little van to deliver that on behalf of X, Y, Z. You know, it's not the, I mean, in some cases it is the big guys that you'd expect, um, you know, kind of the UPSs of the world and the DHLs of the world. But, I, you know, I, I could tell you at least, certainly from, from the things that I buy, you know, from a t-shirt to a, you know, a book or whatever, um, they, get, they get delivered by, by all sorts of means, right? So I think there's an interesting network effect there of, you know, some of these technologies, and that, of course, is the obvious ones like Uber and so on. Um, but I, I think that's a really interesting trend for us to watch, not, not just because of, of the impact of online, but just the way that, that work will evolve. Um, you know, you think about things like Fiverr as an example, um, you know, Etsy is another example. All these things where people use their skills to create something that's easily marketable and easily sellable is it, fascinating. So I think all these opportunities that, that spring up are going to be, um, you know, myriad compared to, to what we've seen before. And, and you know, we should, we should be looking at technology as the enabler of something, not anything to be frightened of, I think. I, ag I agree. We should look at it as an enabler, not something to be frightened of. Now, your team... We've mentioned a couple things that we like and, and how we like behaviors that we have as, as individuals that are successful. But I'm curious, like what stands out to you? Like, let's say in your CTO office, your group of people, like what's a behavior or some sort of trait that stands out? And when you see that, you think to yourself, I want to invest some time into that person. I see a bright future for them. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm a big fan of, of change agents. You know, I mean, I, I've been called that in my career historically. I, I, I've been lucky enough to, to have had lots of good mentors over my time that have enabled, you know, my kind of challenging of status quo and, and wanting to do things differently. Uh, I, I think fundamentally one of the biggest, certainly in my opinion, one of the biggest traits that you can have as a leader is to identify the change agents and put them in roles and positions where they can be most effective. And, you know, it, it's interesting because most change agents that, that I've seen and, and the ones that are in my team, certainly, they don't have big teams of their own. They're just capable, very capable of understanding how to build relationships, how to build trust, how to build constituents, and how to very cleverly look at things in a different way and bring people along. And I, I think that's a skill. And I, I, to this day, I, I don't believe that's anything you can teach. I think you can identify and nurture it, but I don't think you can actually teach that. I think like a professional curiosity, you know, like I had when I was at, at Bechtel and still have now, which is, you know, I, I'll put my hand up and go anywhere around the world because I want to learn how things work somewhere else. And I, you know, I'd like to believe that we could have an impact uh, all over the world. And so I think to do that, you know, professional curiosity where you're constantly challenging, you know, you kind of have this thirst for not just knowledge, but, but you have a thirst for experience and you have a th thirst for making an impact. I think that along with being a change agent um, are definitely the things that I look for because, you know, I mean, as I said, we, we have a, a small team by design, but it's very impactful. If you look at the kind of number of touch points that we have through the organization, and, you know, you can't do that by, by hierarchy or by uh, org chart or by, you know, corporate architecture. You have to do that by people who are invested in the mission, who understand what it takes to get the job done, who are self-starters, who are change agents, and, you know, frankly, are, are a bit bonkers to want to spend half their life on a plane. But that's okay. I mean, you know, that's, 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 that's the perfectly good trade. Yeah, because they don't see it like as half their life on a plane. They, that's like an attribute of something else that they're after they see it as the change that they're creating in the world. And that's just something that's a part of it. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, the planes, the planes at that point is a, is a tool of the job. Right. <laughs> I love it. So as we start to wrap up, let's say I'm going to give you a hypothetical situation here. We'll have a little fun. Let's say you're working out at the gym, right? And as you're walking back to your car in front of you pulls up Elon Musk. Okay. He's got the brand new 2020 Tesla. And the door opens and he's like, hey, you want to hang out? You say, yes, you go hang out. He takes you to the SpaceX factory, right? And he's got this curtain. He pulls back the curtain and there is a time machine. Now, here's the thing. So you're going to go into this time machine and you're going to go back to the exact moment where you were taking apart that computer where your parents were like, what are you doing? Why are you taking apart this computer? And you get to give yourself one piece of advice for the future. What would it be? Oh, man. Um, you know, I, I would hope that on the trip back there, which is what, 30, 36 years, um, in the time that it took to get there, Elon would also have invented a, uh, here's some more patience capsule that you could swallow <laughs> on the way back. Right. And so, so when I land there and I, I start taking that thing apart, my next 36 years is littered with a bit more patience because I think if I, you know, with the benefit of age, not only is slowing down, but wisdom comes into it. And, you know, I, I, I look back and yeah, I was impatient because I was, I, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what I wanted to be. I, I always wanted to be a CTO. Um, not because of the title, just but because of, of the, of the things that it can, it can do materially. Um, 
to, to change, you know, technology or to change a way or to change a customer. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I was very, as I say, I was very fortunate in Bechtel because we built some things that really are iconic and, and helped to change economies and, and change the landscape of countries. And, you know, it's a bit like this, the famous Steve Jobs phrase where he said, I want to put a ding in the universe. I don't think I'm any, anywhere near that. But I had that same passion and that same desire. And But I was just so impatient. You know, I didn't want to sit and wait and learn. And I, it was like, you know, hey, why, why am I not doing this now? I'm ready for it. So, you know, and, and I think that's an okay trait to have. But I, I know that I probably upset a few people along the way because of, of my impatience, which was nothing more than, than passion and want and willingness, but maybe not channeled in the way that most people would understand that. They probably just thought I was, I was like, a, a, I don't know, a, a bee in a bottle. I don't know, but so, but that's okay. I mean, you know, I've, I've chilled out a bit now and, and now I, um, yeah, I appreciate that. But again, it, it was certainly not intended in any other way than just wanting to, to go out there and, and get some stuff done. So yeah, hopefully the patience capsule that I swallow on the way back to, to 1983 will, uh, will set me up for the next days. <laughs> <laughs> it was the opposite. Uh, there was an issue with the patience capsule and it turned out to be like a motivation capsule. So now you've like tripled your amount of energy. <laughs> there, you, there you go. There you go. That's usually how it goes with those types of experiments, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on and hanging out. I'll have Jake and Chloe like loop back with Jenna and let you know when we publish the episode and the clips and all of that. Also, I don't know if you make your way around to Sweden very often, but there is a guy there named Ben and uh, he's got a company called BIM Object that's publicly traded. He's fantastic. You remind me a bit of him. He also likes to race. So he races some of his, he's got like some Ferraris or some Porsches and oh, stuff wow. he races. But he is, I went to Sweden and hung out with him like a month or two ago for a couple days. The guy's just awesome. And his company's like in 20 countries. It's, it's pretty cool. But I will um, send him the formula one series that you were telling me that's like behind yeah. the formula one i'll be like oh i talked to christian today this guy's pretty cool follow him on twitter and then maybe introduce you guys but i don't know i just like to introduce people that i think would get along together i appreciate that thanks a lot thanks for the opportunity it's been great fun thank you so much have a great day all right yeah take care